Well, hi, Will. How are you doing? Doing good. We've got an extra person today just for a little little bit. Three in the booth. Yeah. I like it. And we have uh, James Ingebretson. He's the director of Riot in the Dance, the water, the uh, second one. Yep. And uh, he has got a piece of big news. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure your audience knows about Riot in the Dance. Well, I hope so. <laughs> if they don't, the you're not doing your job. <laughs> the movie and the textbook. Yeah, the right, movie right, and right. the textbook. <laughs> they brand each other. Yeah, ho- exactly. Hopefully. Exactly. So, yeah, the Riot in the Dance nature documentary. If you haven't seen it, check it out at riotinthedance.com and go watch it tonight with your family. But it is a nature documentary that seeks to glorify God and glorify God for the creation that he has made rather than the norm right now in nature docs, which is it Darwin made itself through and through. Yeah. 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 Um, meaningless, nothing. And, and look what it. evolution did. Yeah. Look what evolution so, did. So all the glory, honor, and praise go to evolution. And quite frankly, we're just uh, sick of it. Yep. And I think most people are. Most families yeah. are. Even, even non-Christians, I think to some degree that just yeah. in their bones know that God had something to do with it. Even if they believe in evolution, they still, you know, most people just can't go with a completely naturalistic, no designer, no intelligence mm-hmm. allowed. That, yeah. I just think most people aren't like that. It's, There's it's, some. It's I mean, just it's not, a, it's not a glorious refrain. And no. what Riot provides is a glorious refrain. Right. Pointing to, pointing to and, our creator. And it yeah. gives you an, I, the ability to have gratitude because if there's nothing out there that shaped it other than blind processes and forces, there you can go, oh, wow, which Attenborough does, but mm-hmm. you can't thank anybody. And that's the thing about Riot is you can uh, watch the glories of creation and thank him. You can be full of gratitude, worship, praise. Yeah. yeah. It is the, the launch of a new chapter for the Right in the Dance documentary. Previously, we've done full-length feature documentaries. Right. And now- an hour, hour and a half or so. And yeah, now. yeah. And while those have been great, recently we've, we've partnered with Angel Studios, which is the studio that produced The Chosen Show. It now is producing The Wing Feather Saga and the Tuttle Twins, and doing those as, a, as, as TV series as well. And so we are launching this new, um, new chapter for Riot, which is going to be splitting the documentaries into a TV series. So instead of one long big one, we're going to be doing a series of uh, seasons of eight to 10 episodes. That is a, that's brand new, and it's coming out. And the cool thing about it is the investment and the funding comes from parents and people like like our listeners like like the listeners yeah yeah and they can jump in and it's not a crowdfunding it is an investment opportunity so it's amazing to see that work too yeah it is it's It's, encouraging it is so cool because you can back not only back a project that you want to see but it can it provides it for others and you a project you can believe in and go hey this is something that i i want i want my my money to glorify God, yeah, not yeah. Uh, do something else. Yeah. Regardless, if you're interested in investing, go to angel.com slash riot and you can watch the pilot. You can watch a new promo there and just see what we're up to. 
And uh, we'd love to have you guys follow along on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Riot in the Dance. Check us out and uh, be looking for that TV series to drop very soon. Great. Can't wait. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Great. See ya. See ya. So we're revisiting or continuing to talk about parental care. Yeah. And parental uh, care part two. So far I can, as I can tell, you have given a whole bunch of instances where my speculative theory does definitely does not hold true. This idea of, of an amniotic egg or a placental mammal or even a marsupial mammal with these ornate, incredibly well-built homes or, or nurseries, as I called them. indicative of parental care, which they often are, but you've given some instances where good old gelatinous eggs out in the open. Yeah. And amniotic eggs. And some amniotic eggs as well. uh, Meaning, and amniotic, meaning not amniotic. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. So that's confusing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, It's a negation. Right. An (laughs) an amniotic egg being one that does not have a calcareous, calcareous shell. Uh, with the yolk sac inside. So being more of a gelatinous type right. of egg like amphibians or, or yeah, many they do have yolk, like, but they don't have a yolk. They don't have that, the four extra MBR. Those extra the, membranes? Extra membranes like gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Yolk sac, chorion, amnion. So we can find good parents all over uh, the anim- animal kingdom and we can find yeah. some not so good parents all over the, the animal kingdom For as sure. well. Yeah. For sure. So lead us off. Yeah. Gordon. Um. Well, Last time, I can't remember because we're both getting older. That's not my excuse. Well. I blame the genes. I was forgetful from day one. Right, right. But um, I think I talked about Darwin's frog, or at least I had it on my list, is a frog from Chile down a little bit lower than central Chile, but more into the south quarter, but not all the way down to the very tip. and. The the Darwin's frog is kind of Pinocchio-looking frog with a pointed nose. Mm-hmm. And um, the female lays a, a bunch of eggs. And then the male guards them on the forest floor for, you know, uh, three or four weeks. And then as, he's, as he sees the tadpoles starting to move inside the egg membrane, he then snaps them up into his uh, vocal sac. And then about three or four days later, they hatch. And so he basically broods them in his vocal sac. Wow. For six or so weeks. So and no no eating? Or, well, or is actually, it separate because it's for, a trachea? For, 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 no, vocal sac is just that sac where they sort of uses a resonating chamber when they're calling. So food can make it past. Yeah. Actually, they thought at first that, you know, he forewent. What's the. I think so. It's a forewent conclusion. uh, uh, He he (laughs) basically just, uh, at first they thought maybe he just didn't eat during that incubation period. But a researcher dissected a brooding one and found that his, his gut, his stomach was full of beetles and excreta in the in the digestive tract so so he continued to feed so that the food insects or whatever would bypass this little nursery chamber he just couldn't clear his throat (laughs) (laughs) and um so they would feed the the 
the tadpoles would feed on the yolk, but also a little bit of the lining. There'd be yolk in their gut, but also in the lining of the, the vocal sac. Okay. And then at about six weeks after he's sort of snapped them up into his mouth or oral cavity, he um, then they, they finally metamorphose from tadpoles into to froglets. And then at that time, they're ready to knock on the door, and, and then he opens his mouth, and the, the youngsters hop out. Incredible. That's a, that's a, that's a committed father right there. Yes. And we've seen some committed fathers and mothers. I tend to, well, this is kind of a combination one of both uh, a negative and a positive example of parent. I'm kind of enamored with the brood parasite idea. Yeah. I just think it's remarkable. And so I was looking around to see if this exists in other groups of, of animals. Um, it's most notable in birds. Yes. But there are quite a few uh, more, uh, more and more we're discovering uh, fish species that actually will act as brood parasites as well. Hmm. And these fish, uh, so far, the fish we know of that will actually dump their, their eggs off, like the brown-headed cowbird, like the European cuckoo. Right. Uh, they, uh, they are fish that live in some of the large lakes in East Africa, in the Great Rift Valley. Uh, cichlids? So lake, yeah, they actually parasitize cichlids. Okay. And so... Lake Tanganyika, Lake Victoria, Florida, Lake right. Malawi. And these, so far, the ones that I've learned about are both groups of catfish. And so these um, freshwater catfish, the bagrid catfish, and the, the cuckoo catfish, named hmm. after the cuckoo for their parasitic behavior. Wow. And so these, uh, these fish will smell through their olfactory sense. Uh, aquatic creatures, quote unquote, smell as well. But the, the smell or the odorant molecules, of course, are dissolved in, in the water. Right. And so these catfish will smell the, the spawning of the cichlids. They'll be attracted to that and they'll swim over quickly and often will gobble up uh, those cichlid eggs that are laid and will simultaneously lay their own. And these, uh, the, the cichlids they parasitize are mouth brooders. And so the cichlids will then attempt to quickly scoop up their own eggs uh, fertilized to eggs to brood them in their mouth. And they often scoop up a lot of the baby catfish as well. Do they spit them out before they hatch or after they, they hatch? They hatch on the inside. Mm -hmm. And so these little catfish, kind of like brown-headed cowbirds or European cuckoos, they tend to, uh, the timing uh, tends to have them hatch out first. And these parasitic young I guess young fry of the catfish will then actually eat the eggs of their counterpart cichlids how, how, inside the mom's mouth. Eat the, how about the uh, if the others if the siblings or the step siblings yeah. hatch out? Do they eat them? I after didn't. The hatch? I didn't read about them eating after the hatch, but, but they, they will. Eat they the, definitely so. eat the unhatched. So, is there any example of this kind of brood parasite that actually lives somewhat? You know, still gets a free ride, you know, gets foster parents, but not so gruesome and evil towards siblings where they just, or is it always It seems to be part them? and parcel. That's uh, all the birds I've studied. Uh, there are many examples of birds that fight back. The honey guides and some other birds will actually actively fight off 
mm-hmm. the potential parasitizer, the 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 female bird that's going to lay an egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some birds are are rejectors of these eggs as well. And so the bird world, yeah. uh, Ehrlich did a lot of this work. Paul Ehrlich is yeah. kind of yeah, an yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. character. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, he was a great ornithologist and did a fantastic book. One of my favorite books still recommended to me by my ornithology professor in college. This book's called The Birder's Handbook, A Field Guide to Natural History of the Birds of North America. And it's just, they're wonderful short essays. There's a field notes on almost every single species in North America. Wow. Um, and he writes an interesting little piece on-, on Is it um, well-written or is it just it data is. dump? Uh, no, it's not a data dump. It's definitely concise and precise, especially the, the species entries, but the essays are thoughtful. Uh, and they will use some anecdotal sources and, and spice it up a That's bit. It's nice. Yeah, it is nice. And so, yeah, I don't think these fish fight back much. In addition, the, the catfish adults will actually even position themselves to eat the, eat the eggs as they're being laid. They'll actually gather around the vent of the cichlid mm. and eat the eggs as they come out. Wow. So they've really figured out these cichlids. Yeah. They're astute observers. Right. If anything, the- uh, the, the lesson here, one of the lessons from brood parasitism is you can use your astute observation skills for, for good or for evil. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm going to actually talk about a bird. Right. Yeah. And this is something that sort of blew me away uh, the first time I heard about it. You know, it's not something I've seen in, the, in real life, only pictures. But there's a Central and South American bird, actually gets all the way up into Mexico and all the way down into South America and to Brazil. And it's in the, help me on the pronunciation of the, is it Gruiformes? Gruiformes, okay. And so yeah, it's so in, the grouse. No, Gruiformes. No, is. Aren't they the, are they the grebe? What, what are the grebes? I don't remember the order of okay. grebes. Okay. You got me on that one. Um, but anyway, it's, they've got. Similar, they're water bird, so they like slow-moving streams and things like that, well-covered. And they've got these lobed toes. Yeah. Like coots and what else? Grebes that, they're not webbed, they're lobed. They're yeah, it's lobed. rather unusual in the, in the bird world to have lobed toes yeah. like that. Yeah. But uh, the thing that blew me away about sun grebes is that they, they're also called marsupial birds. And what, what earned them that, that common name, besides sungreeb, is that they've got pouches on the walls of their chest. The pouches are sort of shallow pouches that extend sort of underneath the base of their wings. And the baby sungreebs will get into those pouches. Wow. And they, you know, just like some genes, you know how some genes have pretty shallow po- uh, pockets, right. and which means things fall out. Yeah, they're useless. Put, yeah, they're, they're useless. like kind of like skinny genes. Yeah, skinny genes. Small pocket yeah, genes. Yeah. No. And these pockets aren't real deep because I mean the depth of the chest is. I mean you can't have these really really deep, but they're they're folds of skin that are well muscled, and the the baby grebes get in them. And actually, to help the, uh, make the, the pockets a little bit deeper, functionally deeper, is that there are long feathers that come out from the, the, the walls 
of the chest and, and curve up and backwards to sort of form a, um, an added parapet around the, the walls of the, or the, the rim of the pouch. Mm -hmm. So that helps keep the, the baby. Keep the contents in there. Yep. And what's amazing is these baby grebes will fit in the pockets and the, the parent can, let me see making sure I, I, one of the memory problems I have is the problem of knowing which parent is doing this. It's the male. Yeah. The male sun grebe, uh, is what's, yeah, uh, that's the, the parent who's carrying these, these babies in the pocket. And, uh, what's amazing is that it's not just swimming around that they're holding these, these chicks, but they can dive. And they can fly while they're while built, they're in there. While the chicks are in that's the gotta take some serious effort so to when you're flying fight against I mean, the water to submerge with all that. Well, I think the feather the feathers that curve up, you know, protect, I think somewhat waterproof so that the, the kid isn't well, maybe the kid just holds the breath. The chick holds the breath yeah. while parent dad dives. I was just thinking of you know, trying to submerge myself with two kids on one kid under each arm. Yeah. That's a lot of work. That's amazing. But what's amazing is flying. Yeah. I mean, literally flying and not having, you know, junior pop out of your, your, your armpit pockets. <laughs> uh, that is just incredible. <laughs> I mean, a marsupial bird. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I like this. You know, as far as I know, there may be some you know, obscure documentary that's got them. But I, I have not seen any BBC bird episodes with the sun green. Yeah, right. Exactly. So Canon folks, book those tickets. Yeah. Let's go watch the sun grebe. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, one thing I like, you introduced this bird to me. I'd never heard of the sun grebe before. I'd only really studied grebes of, of uh, North America. But one thing I like about the sun grebe is the fact that you know, as, as amazing as all these different creatures are, the Lord uses characteristics in different creatures in different ways to, 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 serve, their, to serve their best interests. And so it isn't, it isn't only the domain of marsupials to have a pouch. We right. now know we have pouched frogs. We, yeah. have, we have pouched grebes. Uh, there's the pocket gopher, you know, which mm -hmm. has pouches of sorts, different, different function. Right. Um, but this is an interesting point. The Lord yeah. kind of assembles these creatures Speaking with of his the... incredible storehouse of, of anatomical mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's Love your it. turn, but after that, because I'm pretty sure I didn't talk about the marsupial frog. Okay. So, very but good. after you. Yes. Very good. Yeah. That's a phenomenal creature. I want to read a little bit from Paul Ehrlich's essay on brood parasitism in in doing some research, a little bit more research on the brown-headed cowbird and the European cuckoo specifically, brown-headed cowbird of North America, really continent-wide. And I'd mentioned before that these birds, anecdotally, uh, with I think some pretty good uh, observations, were known to follow the bison herd. A bison herd, and, and mm -hmm. a little more homework there, typically don't act like oxpeckers. They're not really relieving the bison of parasites. They're mostly seed eaters. Um, but the, the bison do stir up a lot of insects out of the grass. And so right. a lot of orthopterans, right. uh, the cowbirds will pick out, pick off those grasshoppers, um, when the, when the herds stir them up. And so right. someone decided to follow up that thesis because we now have some significant bison reintroduction efforts in the continent. 
uh, most notably in the southwestern U.S. Ted Turner is one of the folks involved there. There's a lot of private effort. Um, and there's this one uh, bison ranch in New Mexico, about 27,000 hectares. And a researcher wanted to find out, okay, now that the bison are back in this one location, what are the cowbirds going to do? And so he monitored, they monitored, they radio, yeah, it was a clever idea. They radio collared 10 female cowbirds and just quantified how much time they spent uh, in association uh, with mm -hmm. those ungulates. Um, and when, when bison were present, they spent 70% of their time foraging in and around the bison. Um, but when bison weren't present, they would pick out other ungulates, especially elk. Hmm. And they would, uh, they would associate with elk in order to, to get their necessary food. That's great. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, but, but back to the cowbird cuckoo uh, comparison. Do you want to jump in there? Well, I wanted to jump in there because there's one other thing that sort of helped the European cuckoo in successfully parasitizing a nest, and that is the wings of the European cuckoo. I don't know if you were going to mention that. Yeah, I was. That It's helpful and harmful. The European cuckoo, I think this is what you were leading into is a bit of a visual mimic. Yes. And looks a little bit like the sparrow hawk, yes. which we call the kestrel here on this side of the pond. I don't so know if they call the, it that over there. So these sort of concentric banded patterns yeah. on the underside of the wings. So when they flash those undersides uh, flying over the nest of the bird, it freaks the, the parent out. They think it's a raptor yes. and they bail, giving it easy entrance. Yeah. Yeah. Other birds actually respond to the fact that it's a predator and, and will aggressively defend their nest from it. So it's hard to say. I think it probably helps the, the cuckoo, at least in part. Yeah. Um, but the one, the one, <clears throat> one of the major differences between the cuckoo and this is the European cuckoo. There are other cuckoos. There are North American cuckoos. They're not obligate parasites. And so they only parasitize sometimes. And this is another interesting phenomenon that evolutionists are hard-pressed to explain, is that these brood parasites are found throughout the animal kingdom. Uh, especially birds, and they're not uh, limited to one group. They're not limited to cuckoos. They're not limited to icterids. And they're only a portion of each of those groups that are actually brood parasites. So this would make mm -hmm. explaining this trait evolutionarily really, really difficult. Well, you know, I'm just used to them teaching the evolutionary logic that, hey, if I can get away with plopping my eggs into somebody else's nest, yeah. Regardless of what group you're in, I can get away with it and still have offspring and yeah. not have to expend so much energy building a nest, feeding the young. I can go out and just eat and do other things. Shrewd strategy. Yeah. It's a, so the, 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 the catch-all ex explanation is if it's uh, advantageous, it will evolve. But the thing is, as we've said on just every other char character trait ever, whether it's a anatomical trait or behavioral trait, is that just because it works and is successful does not explain the genesis, the formation of that trait. Absolutely. And, and, so, and we should expect to see all cowbirds or all cuckoo species as speciation occurs. Why would this incredibly advantageous trait only be found in a 40% or less of that group's species. Mm -hmm. You would think this would be advantageous well, enough yeah, that would be found the thing throughout is if the you clade. Have, and this is the, I'm just thinking 
yeah. devil's advocate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is that they would say, well, if everybody tried to be a brood parasite, then it would fall apart. The whole idea would fall apart because if everybody started to go for that strategy, if everybody wanted to be a salesman, but nobody wanted to produce, you couldn't, it would fall apart because you've got to have the different groups. You've got to have a base to support the parasites. If everybody wanted to be a parasite, then the whole strategy falls apart. Right. So that's sort of their explanation. But then it doesn't explain the genesis of it. Right. It, it's it, The behavior is something that is, whether it's the behavioral program in the brain or the, the anatomical features, whatever that's you're trying to explain, it's, it's, uh, it requires information. Absolutely. And that's, where, and that's where mutation doesn't cut it. Yeah. And my big question, you know, when I, when I talk to my biology students is you need to pose this question to the materialist and the, and the Christian philosopher. What does your premise on origins require of material stuff? What is your, what is your origins hypothesis require of nature to be able to do? And over and over again, the requirement upon the materialist is, is tremendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, that burden of t- attempting to explain why we see brood parasitism in uh, maybe a hundred different bird species. Mm-hmm. And they have to say that this evolved again and again and again, independently in these right. different lineages. Was, like that's, when that's, they say the I evolved, they, if you see it in very different groups, what, whether it's a behavior or whether it's an eye or something like that, it, they say it evolved independently. But it's like, okay, just getting it one time is- One times impl- 10 to the triple digit exponent. Yeah. Just getting yeah. it one time does not explain it. So if you have it, the eye forming in a lot of different groups, it didn't just evolve in a lot of different groups. It was designed in all of those groups. Exactly. And so- I think of I think of God's storehouse of anatomical features as kind of this limited or excuse me limitless hardware store, mm-hmm. and he grabs these different mechanisms and fits them into creatures that are vastly yeah. different from one another, uh, sometimes for different purposes. But I'm going to read a little bit um, from from Ehrlich on brood parasitism, yeah. uh, contrasting the cuckoo strategy and the and the the European cuckoo strategy and the and the brown headed cowbird strategy because they do things a little bit differently, and so this is Ehrlich. Some species of birds thrive not by carefully rearing their own young, but by pawning that task off on adults of other species. The European cuckoo, whose distinct call is immortalized in the sound of the cuckoo clock, is the bird in which this habitat has been most thoroughly studied. Female European cuckoos lay their eggs only in the nests of other species of birds. A cuckoo egg usually closely mimics the egg of the host, Mm -hmm. one of whose eggs is often removed by the cuckoo. The host may recognize the intruding egg and abandon the nest, or it may incubate and hatch the cuckoo egg. Shortly after hatching, the young European cuckoo, using a scoop-like depression on its back, instinctively shoves over the edge of the nest any solid object that it contacts. With the disappearance of their eggs and rightful young, the foster parents are free to devote all of their care to the young cuckoo. Frequently, this is an awesome task, since the cuckoo chick often grows much larger than the host adults long before it can care for itself. One of the tragicomic scenes in nature is a pair of small foster parents working like Sisyphus to keep up with the voracious appetite of an outsized young cuckoo. Wow. And so the cuckoo... Insidious. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's the definition of. And shockingly, these these cuckoos um, have the genetic code to be able to lay an egg that's similar to the species that they're parasitizing. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. And there can be tremendous variation from pale blue robin-like eggs to white dotted or mm-hmm. uh, speckled with squiggles, reddish brown and, and black kind of splotching wow. on a white egg. Matching, matching the... Uh, matching the, the parasitized um, host's wow. eggs. Yeah. So that's the, uh, that's the cuckoo. Wow. Yep. Amazing bird. The, uh, the, uh, the cowbirds do, are not able to do that. They aren't able right. to change their eggs. They all kind of right. look like a cowbird egg. And right. it is a tragic scene to, to see yeah. in studying hooded warblers and wood thrushes and, and Acadian flycatchers on the Cuyahoga River Valley in Ohio. We are looking for cowbird parasites or parasitized nests. And it is, is kind of a gross thing to see this massive, this massive squawking baby that's larger than the parents. The squeaky, yeah. This squeaky wheel is getting all the grease right. from yeah. those parents. That's just sad. Yeah. Well, going back to amphibians, wanted to mention a, a really cool example, again, uh, of a group that I've never seen in the flesh, never seen alive. I've seen pickled specimens. These are a strange group of amphibians called Sicilians. Oh, yeah. They are weird. legless amphibians. Yeah. So not a frog, not a salamander. They look, they're segmented. So they look a bit like an earthworm, a large earthworm with a, with a backbone and, yeah. a, and a mouth. But earthworms, of course, don't have backbone. They, they can't stretch. But these guys, these guys have backbones. They can't, they can't stretch. Earthworms can stretch several times their own length. Yeah. As you, you've probably seen a robin trying to pull one out of the ground, but Sicilians are got a nice strong backbone, slimy skin, usually fossorial, meaning they they like to be underground in moist uh, tropical forests or in aquatic environments, depending on the species. Some of them are in swamps and and that sort of thing. But in one of the BBC uh, documentaries, they were Cameramen were filming a Sicilian, one species of Sicilian that was an egg layer. There are some Sicilians that uh, are give live birth. Mm. Um, just a side point on the live birth ones: they, the, the, uh, the baby Sicilians will live off the yolk inside the the mom, but then when they hatch, they actually uh, with their sharp teeth will scrape the lining of the oviduct of the, the mother to, to augment their nutrition wow. before they come out. But there's this one egg-laying species where the, um, they were filming the mom uh, with all these little squirming babies all around her. And then they, they realized they are growing awfully fast. How could they, because they saw the babies licking secretions off the mom. Of course, uh, some of it would be yolk that was still in their uh, gut. But then they started increasing their their weight by much faster than this little secretion that was coming out of the skin. And then they captured it on film. There was this feeding frenzy and the babies with their sharp little teeth were ripping off the mother's skin. Oh my. 
Yeah. And they were sort of doing these death rolls. They, they would grab the mother's skin and, and then sort of roll and peel. Oh my. Uh, yeah. How did and mom then, respond to that? Well, the thing is, it was design feature because right. the, the skin would grow and the skin would be full of lipid-rich secretions and other nutrients. And the babies would be ripping off these hanks of skin and uh, gobbling them down. And so that was the explanation for their uh, massive weight gain. Yeah. But mom... And could, then could she tolerate would, it. It wasn't yeah, harmful. Oh, yeah. It was like, you know how you have dead skin? Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was dead, but she would regrow it. She's getting an exfoliation. She's at the spa. She's, she's at the spa. She's getting an exfoliation from the kids. Wow. And they're growing. I mean, you think of a mammal nursing on a nipple, but here it's like amphibian it's babies like ripping the further. skin off the mom. And then she regrows it. And then they repeat, you know. Eat, repeat, eat, So they'll repeat. do this for a significant chunk of time. Yeah. Wow. And then, and once they're independent and then they slither off to lead their own life. But uh, in that growth, that heavy growth phase, that's, that's how, that's her form of parental care. Incredible. That is quite um, sacrificial. I mean, she's got skin in the game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you played that one so oh, well. Oh, man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Oh, man. You know, the only, only, I have just two other little tidbits to share. Sure. Just uh, quick bits about the different bird species um, and two groups that are pretty closely related. The galliformes, which are kind of the grouse, turkey, Chicken. game type birds, chickens. Yeah. And then also the, the columbiformes. Mm-hmm. The doves the and pigeons. pigeons and doves, yeah. And, um, you know, not getting too technical at all, but just to point out that some other just kind of fun, and, and these are potentially uh, ones that you could uh, see, at least in the Columba for me, since we have a lot of, of rock doves or rock pigeons, uh, we call them the, the pigeons of the, of the urban centers. This right. is a very common species throughout North America. Uh, it's one of those species that's called a generalist and uh, the generalist meaning they're capable of living in a lot of different conditions, capable of eating a lot of different foods. And and this happens to be a species that has really uh, succeeded and honed in on free handouts uh, from mm -hmm. from us. And so uh, the, like feeding the pigeons in the park, the pigeons have a Popcorn. lot of yeah, a lot of food <laughs> to access in, in the Big Apple or wherever they are. And, and one of the additional uh, features of this bird is the ability, and I don't remember if it's the male or female, maybe you do. I believe probably it's, not if it's between I believe the it's two. the male. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, they actually will will instead of having the offspring pick away at or, or at the skin or the uh, inside lining of of the esophagus or the vocal sacs, these uh, these parents will actually slough their esophagus epithelial cells. Wow, and will regurgitate that uh, to feed their young. It's called crop milk. Mm -hmm. And so the crop being a, an early digestive organ in the alimentary canal there uh, that helps to, uh, that helps these seeding birds, especially to crush, to crush their food. Uh, this crop milk is regurgitated to feed the, the young, especially when they're, you know, pink naked and, and altricial in the nest. Mm -hmm. wow. And so, yeah, the columbiformes, many of them perform that, uh, that trick. Um, and the last one is simply a quick mention of a similar uh, bird called the sand grouse, which- I love this uh, one. And there's some great footage out there 
I don't mm-hmm. think I mentioned That's the it. sand grouse before. Right, no, but it's you, this beautiful. I do plump. remember that you did not. <laughs> okay, very good. So go for it. <laughs> uh, sand grouse, which is a kind of a North African species. There's some great BBC footage out there. Uh, these birds, of course, the limiting factor in their environment is water, and so when when the rains come and these uh, these creatures have birds in the nest, uh, we call them nestlings. Once they once they reach the the point of hopping out of the nest and get out of the nest, that's called fledging and they become fledglings then and they often get a lot of parental care still. But these sand grouse, though those altricial young are losing, um, or maybe they're not so altricial in, the, in grouse species, excuse me, they tend to be quite precocial. They need water. They're losing a lot of Aren't water. Aren't they in the Sahara? They are in the Sahara. Mm-hmm. And so they're losing a ton of water just by existing. Right. Uh, evaporation is is really high. We've got an incredibly an arid situation. And so the adults will actually fly to these little uh, temporary ponds after rainfall and soak up as much water as they can in their breast feathers. That's just great. And carry it to the young who then gobble up and that water. it can water. be several, I don't know, dozen miles or so or more? It can be several miles. They're carrying yeah. this heavy load. Heavy so load. Talk so about a heavy load, load carrying water. Water in the feathers. So in it's their not feathers. like a bag or a sack or a jug. They just soak up the water like, like it's a sponge. Yep. And the the water is in between all of the. Is it between the feathers it's or caught in between, in between the, and caught in between those barbs and barbules? Yeah. And then and then then the babies, when she gets back, the are the fledgling what the nestlings? nestlings. Yeah, they'll come um, over and get their start, fill. Yeah, start drinking out of mom's breast feathers like it was a pop machine. <laughs> Soda That's, fountain. Yeah. Yeah. That's just neat stuff. That is so neat. Good parents. Good parents, but even greater is the um is the the creator. Amen. Uh, obviously that designed all of these wonderful creatures to yes, we see definite signs of the fall. I mean, we've heard our share of the brood parasite stuff and we see a lot of antagonistic relationships in nature, but shining through all of it, we can see the glory of God in his, uh, in the complexity and the diversity of, and just the, the care that you see these animals, uh, just, they do it naturally. Doesn't, they're not fretting over it. They just do it. And, uh, it's something that we people, even though our behavior is spiritually motivated, either for good or evil, we can still look at the instinctual behaviors and learn a lot, you know, yeah. just like Solomon said, go to the ant, sluggard. Right. That's and good. And we can go, go to all these good parents in the nature and learn, learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a kind of a, a helpful, I guess, way to, to view nature documentaries or, or anything like that you're consuming uh, and can be a helpful takeaway message. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's... Well, that's a good yeah. encouragement to, yeah. to, to remember to do this as a parent. You know, as Solomon says in 1 Kings 4.33, when he taught about birds and reptiles and fish, it said, men from all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And so just learning natural, we may have said this before, just learning natural history, learning just the raw facts about animal life, plant life, whatever life you want to study. You yeah. just have an inclination to learn. It is wisdom. It Absolutely. Is because 
you are studying the master's artwork. You are studying the, the, the master's architecture. You're studying the master's, how he solved all of these problems of how do, how do animals provide for themselves? He designed it all. And so we can, by looking at his artwork, his engineering, his sculpturing, yeah, we can learn a lot. It is wisdom. That's so good. And so, so be reminded of that as you have a, a kid who's super interested in dinosaurs or super interested in herbs. That's another category of wisdom. So this is, this is a valuable endeavor. Mm-hmm. And pairing that category of wisdom with lots of wisdom about the Lord's word, those two are a powerful combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Gordon. Well, that, that wraps it up for today. All right. We'll see you next time. Yep. See ya. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.